Mindfulness is a bit of a buzzword these days, often used to describe a method of bringing yourself into the moment or finding calm, but it is so much more than that with so much potential. And with today's guest, we are going to get into it and so much more. I'm Kelly Youngstrom, and this is Keep Yourself Well. My guest today is typically a person that you might imagine yourself going to see to put your body back together. Scotty Butcher is a physiotherapist and a professor of physiotherapy at the University of Saskatchewan. He's also certified as a mindfulness and meditation teacher who incorporates mindfulness into his research and practice, something that benefits his patients and his students, and will also benefit us today. Hi, Scotty. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you for joining me on Keep Yourself Well. Hi, Kelly. Yeah, thanks for the invite. This is uh, this is awesome. I'm happy to be here. Well, I have been wanting to chat with you for some time, and then we had a hilarious interact, well, semi-interaction at a coffee shop where I was embarrassingly getting photos, disrupting your nice afternoon coffee. So I was like, perfect excuse to say hello and make a better first impression. <laughs> Hopefully, no, no, no problem. I can imagine those uh, those uh, um, Photoshop or photo shoots would be uh, relatively uh, embarrassing because you're, you know, you you have to get yourself all glammed up, and, you, and then you're like, you know, making it all awkwardly posing and things like that. But but we didn't we didn't notice anything like that, so don't worry about it. Oh yeah, not at all. Uh, well, and then the jokes really when you know that I actually just sit at home and work in sweatpants all day, but pretend that that's what I look like when I'm working from home. So I would love to know. This is how we always start the podcast. Uh, how do you keep yourself well? What is your approach to personal wellness? Yeah, well, um, wellness for me is multifaceted, um, as I'm sure it is for many others. And uh, I, uh, as you'll probably hear more about today, I, I'm very much a believer of mind-body approaches to uh, to health and wellness. And so I, I keep myself well by keeping as active as I can, by um, by seeing my uh, mental health therapist, by uh, meditating, by practicing daily mindfulness, um, both on a uh, uh, a uh, formal as well as an informal perspective. Um, I do my best to eat well, although I'm not as stringent as uh, some when it comes to uh, that. I, I have cut out uh, sugar for the most part, but uh, other than that, I'm I uh, I'm just trying to do a bit more of a balanced approach and. Um, lots of strength training associated with that as well when I'm feeling physically up for it. And so, so as much movement as I can, but both, both body and mind. Yeah. I mean, really all encompassing. And I love that because it's not one end of the spectrum, you know, the mental, physical, emotional, spiritual. So when you say activity, strength training, obviously being part of it. What's your favorite type of activity? What else do you move in? Lots of time outside. Is that a focus for you? Yeah, it is. Uh, lots of, I, I've really adopted a walking practice over the last, uh, um, little while that has been uh, I, I think one of the biggest benefits I, I I have spent a lot of time doing strength training in the past uh, when I was uh, back when I was an athlete not not that we're not all to some degree athletic or athletes um, but I, I used to I used to play rugby for uh, quite a while here in Saskatoon and um, you know it was always hard conditioning it was always intervals and and that and, and so uh, being much older than uh, playing rugby age I'm not doing 
so much of that anymore. And I always discounted the, uh, the effects of a really low intensity, uh, aerobic style walking style program. And I've, I've noticed some huge benefits to that. Uh, so trying to walk daily, um, minimum of five days a week, uh, trying to get 20 to 30 minutes a day, nothing strenuous, just, uh, just a nice brisk walk. Um, and, uh, then strength training. And so two to three to five days a week, depending on what phase I'm in in my life and what's go- what else is going on. I, uh, I like, uh, I like strength training. Um, I have done CrossFit in the past. I have trained as a power lifter in the past. Uh, so it, it all just sort of depends on where I'm at in my current, current stages of, uh, of what I'm doing, but uh, it's mostly that. And then as part of that, it's, it's mobility. And so, you know, I, I always get when I, when I talk about my mindfulness practices, I always get people saying, Oh, you must be into yoga. And actually I'm not, I, I, I don't enjoy yoga that much, but um, it's just because I'm not, I, I, it's just never been something that's resonated with me, but a lot of the, the, the aspects behind yoga and uh, the, the mindful practices, the mind body medicine, uh, the mind body uh, uh, fitness approach to it is, is really good. So, so for me, yeah, it's, it's, it's walking, it's mobility work that comes through strength training and uh, strength training. I love that kind of a triad. And I mean, with the, something that I highlight, as you said, in enjoyment, and that's, I think a really big part of it. You know, if you don't enjoy yoga, I think you can get many of the benefits of yoga in different ways. So you can do the mobility aspect, you can do the breathing aspect. You don't necessarily have to be combining them. Uh, I'm sure you get this a lot. I feel like anytime I talk about cardio, people instantly tell me they hate running. I'm like, well, then don't like let, then let's not do that. And we'll do something else. And I would love to know, do you feel like there's a big mindfulness aspect in your walking? Because for me personally, I feel like it's kind of a moving meditation. So although there's that low intensity cardio component, I feel like almost more of my personal benefit just comes from being outside in nature and having that time to be kind of in peace and quiet. Yeah, really cool question. I love the question. And it's not going to be a straightforward answer, because um, because they usually aren't. Mm-hmm. Um, yes, and no, I, I, I'm a big fan of, of, as you as you pointed out of, of the enjoyment of an experience and um, the autonomy that comes around choosing what you what you do. And so honestly, sometimes I, I go for a walk, and I blast my heavy metal. And I'm just like, just I don't know, just in in a different frame of mind where I'm thinking about work or I'm doing something like that. And then there's others where it is, it is very specifically mindful. And so I think you can do it either way. Um, I really enjoy both aspects of it. Um, one of the things that, again, I hope that I'll talk about is sort of the ups and downs that come with the autonomic nervous system and, and balance and, and the way that we learn how to regulate. And I think I think that uh, that practice of having the ability to jump into a really sympathetic zone, even if it's, even if we're still talking relatively low intensity, you can still get your mindset, you know, really revved up when you want to, but then you can also co- uh, come back to calm and you can come back to rest and, and relaxation and rest and digest and, and uh, use, use walking as a mindful practice. And there's no, there's no right or wrong. And I, but, but you're absolutely right. People will say, Oh, you know, if, you don't like cardio well you, i don't like running or when you talk about uh, uh different types of aerobic exercise it doesn't have to be like that unless you're an endurance athlete if you're an endurance athlete then you pretty much have to do your endurance activities but other than that you know it's just about generalized activity and just trying to stay as active as you can 
Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I love that. And it's a great takeaway. And we'll get into talking about the nervous system regulation. And I mean, you said phase of life in terms of your own personal training. And I think it's, you know, phase of life, even phase within the day, what you need in the day. Um, And I would love to know, like, let's get into how did you get into physiotherapy? What made you want to be a physiotherapist? And also, what does that mean, I think, for the general public? Because I think we maybe have uh, a specific image in mind when we talk about physiotherapy. Yeah, very, very good question. So um, I, I am a practicing physical therapist, but I actually don't practice physio um, any, anymore. I'm t- I teach at the university. Um, but in so, so my, my path has really evolved from sort of the typical physical therapist. But um, I initially got into it with, because of sports and sports injuries. As I mentioned earlier, I, I played rugby for a long time. I was involved with uh, high school and, and uh, um, elementary school sports where I needed, I needed frequent uh, visits to the physical therapist and it just seemed like a really cool job. Um, but that is what most people think of physiotherapy when they think of physiotherapy, they think of injury, uh, injury rehab and uh, from a musculoskeletal perspective or a sports perspective. And it, it, it is well beyond that. We, we treat uh, physical therapists treat and assess and treat multiple systems, including our cardiovascular system, our respiratory systems, our neurological system, um, as well as the muscles and, and bones and joints that, that are associated with any of the orthopedic type concerns that you might have or, or, or into sports. And so it's a, it's a fairly uh, broad profession that that, uh, that allows many different ways of, of looking at a human. And what we've, we've really evolved since I actually went through my physio school from a very physical-based profession into one that really is well-rounded in, in examining a whole human and looking at uh, the, the client in front of you as a holistic being, which, which really they are. And uh, so the psychological sides of it has been really um, interesting in, in uh, my personal and professional development, tr- exploring how uh, the interplay of the mind and the body and, and the psychological with the physical uh, can have a big impact on each other. And so psychological concerns have a big impact on pain responses and other other symptoms that you may have and vice versa when you have symptom or pain or um, uh, physical ailments that has a big impact on the psyche as well so it's that it my development has really been around the uh um, integrating the mind and the body in that in that realm and that's that's been the most exciting for me as a uh as a as an educator in in the university and as a researcher is to be able to delve into that yeah, really taking that whole is greater than the sum of the parts approach, which I feel like is what you do in your personal care as well in terms of how you keep yourself well. So what led you from that physical practice to more of the instructing and research side of things? Yeah, I, uh, I, I enjoyed being a physio in terms of practicing, but um, I, I was really, it, it was sort of a roundabout way of going towards it. I, I didn't really saw, seek out to be a researcher or a teacher, um, although I come by that, honestly, because I've, I've come from a family of multiple generations of teachers. Um, so it was, it's, it's quite uh, an, an interesting uh sort of line of path and path that, that I've been on it sort of led me back to where my, my family roots are. But um, I, I got into, I did a master's degree, fell in love with research as part of my master's degree, but I did the master's degree in, with the intention of, of, of enhancing my clinical skill. But, but it turns out that actually I wanted to do research. And so I, I moved from doing sports and musculoskeletal research into doing more pulmonary and respiratory physiology and exercise physiology as part of my 
clinical practice and then went on and did a PhD in that area. And so, so since I've been on faculty at the University of Saskatchewan, which is about going on about 15 years now, um, it's, uh, it's really taken a, a, a nice transition from my basic physiotherapy training into a really holistic integrative approach to, to looking how, how people exercise, why they exercise and uh, some of the benefits that you, that you get from, uh, from exercise. And it started off being very much, as I mentioned before, from a physical perspective, a biomechanical perspective, you know, the body is injured, or it has a, you know, specific weakness or a specific limitation. And, um, and, and working with that and trying to change that to, as I said, both, both professionally and, and as you mentioned, um, personally as well, uh, to, to that holistic approach that does involve, uh, psychological practice. And so, um, I, I started out as a, um, as someone really interested in strength training and, um, I still am very much so in, in both my personal and my, in my professional practice. Uh, I did a lot of research on on strength training, um, and one of the interesting things that sort of led me down the psychology path. It was sort of a there two prongs to to the path. On one path or one side of the path was my professional life, where I was hearing stories from our participants that would that um, would really lead me down the path of thinking resilience. Things that you don't you don't capture by doing a uh, a physical test or a functional performance test or measuring someone's muscle strength or their ability to walk quickly or get upstairs, you start hearing stories around things like, uh, well, I can actually bend down and pick up my pot from out of the bottom shelf, lift it with two hands, and then stand myself back up again. And whereas before I used to have to use my hand to get down, and then I'd be down on all, you know, all fours, you can't capture that with traditional uh, quantitative research where you're, where you're measuring, um, again, people's function you have to start looking at the qualitative side of the story piece. So um, it really got me interested in the, in, in looking at resilience and, and components of building resilience, which is really just the ability to bounce back from, from concerns uh, that you may have psychological or injury wise uh, really into thinking about, what are the components of resilience and mindfulness being one of the, the main components. And as part of that self-compassion and, and there's a few others that, that play into that. So that got me professionally sort of on the mindfulness side. And then the parallel path that I mentioned was one where I was personally uh, dealing with my own mental health uh, issues. I, uh, I have had a long history of generalized anxiety disorder with some social anxiety, and it stems from about 25 years ago when I had a, a concussion um, as part of me being involved with rugby. And um, as we know, concussions can have a big impact on mental health. And so um, the, the challenge, though, is 25 years ago, we weren't talking about mental health, and especially when we're talking about a young male who's in, a, in an aggressive, you know, testosterone based sport like rugby, where it's like, no, you don't you don't talk about that. And, and uh, so I went a good portion of my adult life not really understanding why my brain seemed different than than what I wanted it to be, what it used to be and what it is with other people. And so I went through this journey and, and this really happened over over the last five to, to seven years or so, where I really started seeing a counselor and seeing a mental health uh, therapist in of, of varying sorts and finding mindfulness 
personally as well. And so it's very, very interesting that my personal and my professional paths have really, have really meshed together. And so um, at the same time that I was, I was learning about mindfulness professionally and academically, I was really experiencing it personally and really getting into um, the, what it really meant for me to be able to be mindful of my, my physiology and being trained as a physiotherapist and, and an exercise physiologist. I was really trained to think of physiology and think about what happens inside the body. But it was super cool to me, um, being the nerd that I am, to take the, uh, the, the, that personal feeling side of things where, where I can actually look at what's happening in my body and mesh that up with what we know about mindfulness and emotional regulation and, and start looking at how academically that starts working. So I can then take my personal side, blend it with the academic side. And that's where I am now is looking at the the integration of emotional regulation, mental health, uh, strength responses and recovery and, and how that balances with the uh, autonomic nervous system. So, so I guess that was a long winded way of answering your question. I mean, it's amazing. And I have a thousand things that now I want to ask. Well, and I too have suffered from concussions. And so you're naturally bringing up a lot of topics that I, you know, bring into conversation on the podcast all the time. And I think the topic of TBI in sports and conversations surrounding mental health and encouragement of, you know, taking care of mental health and going to therapy. And like you said, as a young man, not having that encouragement and those role models likely to, to say, you know, Hey, like going to therapy is cool. It's not a macho thing to not go. And it's not a sign of weakness and all of these things. And, um, you know, I can only imagine, I think this was obviously meant to be part of your path, but had you found those therapeutic approaches earlier on in life, you know, maybe how different things would have been and potentially less struggle, along the way. So I appreciate you sharing that. And I would love to know. So um, in, I know you touched on it, but is there a very specific body of research that you're working on right now, a certain project that you're uh, working on related to these concepts? Yeah. So, so it's, uh, I'm, I'm, I guess I'm really trying to get my feet wet in a few different areas, but the, the overall intent is to try and go down the path of, of understanding how our nervous system plays into our physical and our mental and, and emotional responses. And so, um, and, and that's sort of the vague overarching topic, but for me, it's, uh, it's looking at um, uh, measures of resilience and mindfulness and self-efficacy. Um, I've even looked into uh, some of the mindset research fixed versus uh, growth mindset. I've looked into grit um, as a concept and from, from more the, uh, uh, the emotional side of things. And then from the physical side of things, looking at exercise recovery. And so, um, you know, and pre- preparedness to train and not just in athletes. And this has certainly not been my, my focus in my research has been, has been in chronic disease. It's been in uh, older adults and it certainly hasn't been very strong into the athlete area. So I'm really even just talking about uh, the general person, a generalized population who goes to the gym and wants to make improvements and uh, looking at how uh, impaired recovery psychologically or physiologically can have an impact on your adaptations. 
And one of the key uh, markers that we can look at very non-invasively with uh, some some really strong advances in our, our technology over the last few years is, is examining heart rate variability. And so for me, that's one of the very the, the strongest tie between the our emotional regulation side and our and our physical uh, regulation side. And so it, it, it's a nice window into both sides of it. And so I, I'm looking at how heart rate variability is affected with, uh, with stress responses um, and how mindfulness can ha- impact your heart rate variability through reductions in stress and increases in mindfulness and how that strengthens your parasympathetic nervous system drive or sometimes called the vagal drive or the vagal break or uh, polyvagal theory and all of these sort of things that kind of come into uh, to this world where we were really what we're trying to do is we're trying to strengthen our ability to put the brakes on life on on this fast-paced highly sympathetically fight or flight driven lifestyle that we all lead um, where it, I mean, I'm sure you you've talked to people that have talked about the nervous systems before, but our sympathetic system was designed to help us fight the bear or run away from the bear. Well, there aren't really bears in our lives. Our bear, the bears in our lives are, are all the tiny little stresses and all the, uh, even things like scrolling social media becomes, turns into a stressor and it becomes, something that is a uh, psychological and emotional stress that that is uh, that constantly puts us in a state of fight or flight and and in the sympathetic uh, sympathetic drive and so looking at how to how to strengthen your parasympathetic system and your ability to have the vagus nerve kick in when it needs to kick in to to limit what, what the sympathetic system is doing and bring you back into a state of calm, into a state of where we are meant to be, not when the bear is chasing us, but when we're sitting in the cave and, you know, sitting around a fire and doing all, what, all the other things that we're supposed to be doing throughout our, our daily life. And so, so this is, this is what my research is, is starting to look at is, is how we can use some of the psychological techniques like mindfulness and heart rate variability biofeedback and EEG biofeedback and all these things that have uh, uh, both psychological and physical effects. And then how that relates to someone's ability to self-regulate their ability to recover from those stresses, as well as other stresses like exercise. And so being an exercise person, of course, I want to bring it back into, well, how can we best train? How can we best perform our strength training reps or our walking program? Or how do we how do we recover between sets? Or how do we recover between bouts of exercise? And, and how does that actually work? Should we be doing different breathing techniques um, throughout each, uh, you know, every time we go and do some exercise? Or, you know, is it is it afterwards? And so it's all these questions that are sort of mulling around in my brain right now that uh that that need an outlet and that's where the research comes in so yeah there's 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 a couple projects Uh, i've got an honor student who looked at uh, mindfulness on heart rate variability and exercise responses um and and we're getting some really cool results to to that one and then um in other populations older adults as well as uh uh, potentially individuals post-covid where they where they have long long covid symptoms uh where we do know there's an autonomic dysregulation associated with uh, with individuals with long COVID and how we can then look at some of these interventions like biofeedback type style training along with uh, um, the other types of ex- exercise or activity that they're doing or, or trying to control and see how we can best, again, re-regulate the system to have the optimal responses. 
literally bridging the gap between that mental and physical as much as possible. And how interesting to be on the forefront of all of that, and especially on the forefront of the COVID research. I mean, that's brand new up and coming all the time. So I would love for you to describe heart rate variability to those who are unaware and also to talk a little bit about how you personally track that because I know you're an aura ring guy and I decided that once I finish my uh, final on Saturday, I'm treating myself to an aura ring. So selfishly, I want to know all about it, but because I think that it's, you know, we talk a lot about the nervous system and regulation and, you know, things like heart rate and, and variability, but what are the hows, whys, whens to track it? Yeah, very, very good question. So it's uh, it really what we're doing is it's it's a, like a fancy way of of measuring heart rate. You know, every, everybody's seen heart rate monitors. You, you know, you've got a heart rate monitor strap that you can strap on or you can, uh, you know, all, all our Apple watches will measure heart rate and and that. But there, what you need to be able to do, it's not just simply the rate that you're you're looking at. It's actually what we call the R to R interval. And it's really uh, the it measures the electrical pulse that's the strongest positive pulse on each heartbeat and so there's there's a if you were to look at an ecg or an ekg tracing you would see there's a pqrst uh waveform that's formed and that's your traditional you know up and down waveform that you see when when it's represented as uh um as an ecg as as someone's heartbeat well the 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 highest stroke uh, um, on the positive side is is the r is the R wave. And so you, what you can do is you can look at the interval between one R wave and then the, the next R wave. So between beats and measure the length of time that happens between each of those beats, which is different than just the heart rate. Because what we know happens is that heart rate is determined um, by many, many different factors. But um, the, let's say if we're talking resting heart rate, it, it's a balance between the sympathetic inputs that the heart is receiving, as well as its inherent, um, uh, the heart has its inherent electrical activity where there's a standardized heart rate that it'll have. And then, so there's there's imp- influences on increasing the heart rate and keeping the heart rate at a, at a fairly high level. And then there's the vagus nerve that also innervates the heart and, and can have an impact on reducing heart rate. And so, so this is why we kind of look at the change in heart rate with, um, with different activities or different situations as a marker of what's happening with the autonomic nervous system. And so very briefly, the, the way this works is that um, there is a change in your heart rate with a few different factors that just happen while you're sitting at rest doing nothing other than just breathing. You have a change in pressure that's measured in your blood pressure. It's measured in your heart and in your, um, in your central, what we call barrel receptors. And so it's the, the receptors in the, in the arterial system that, that measure the pressure. And so at, with each consecutive beat, you see the pressure go up and, 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 uh, within the arterial system. And so there's a bit of a fluctuation that happens with that, that happens at a, a range of about six ups and downs per minute. Now, that's sort of inherent in, in what we would typically do now with, with, without even controlling anything, including breathing. But if we were to time our breathing to match up with this, um, what would happen is when you take a breath in, if it's a fairly long inhalation, let's say about five seconds in, 
you can match that inhalation with the change in or um, barrel pressure, the, the arterial pressures. Then as you breathe, as you start to breathe out again, the exhalation will reduce both the pressure and the heart rate. And then you'll see an actual reduction in the heart rate. So if you take these long, slow breaths in and out again at this around six breaths a minute. So, you know, total 10 second breath, five in, five out or four in, six out, you'll see these massive changes in the actual heart rate within that time frame. And so you take a breath in, your heart rate goes up, you take a breath out, your heart rate goes down. And if you're just sitting breathing or like, like we're talking right now where I'm just, you know, my breaths are way more scattered than that. And they're just kind of all over the place. The variability in your heart rate is very scattered as well. And it doesn't have this really nice waveform that has a big amplitude. If you were to do this, what we call resonance frequency breathing, which is that six breaths a minute, five in, five out, or four in, six out, it maximizes the change in, in heart rate going up with the change in heart rate going down. And so you have, you can track those, uh, the variability between these R to R intervals, and you'll see that heart rate or those intervals will, will decrease. The heart rate increases and the time between the intervals will, will decrease. And you'll see the heart rate variability go up. And then you'll see it come back down again as you, um, uh, as you, sorry, I said that reversed, but you know what I'm saying? The heart rate goes up, the, uh, the, the intervals decreases, the heart rate goes down, the intervals increase. And so what we're really trying to do is we're trying to maximize the difference between the highest heart rate and the lowest heart rate in a very sine wave type format where we're, where we're, you know, have a nice waveform that's going up and down. And so what the research has shown is that when you can breathe like that to match up your change in barometric or um, uh, baroreceptor pressures with uh, with the change in heart rate is that will maximize the variability. And that maximal variability is associated with all kinds of positive things on the parasympathetic side of things and the vagus nerve. And so when people talk about long, slow, deep breathing as being very parasympathetic, that's really what they're talking about. They're trying to, to activate that, that parasympathetic system and have your vagus nerve. It's, it's almost like doing long, repetitions of a bicep curl, right? You know, when you, when you can really stretch out that bicep for at to its longest length, like dropping your heart rate down um, with, with these slow contractions, you can actually get some, uh, some interesting benefit. So, so I guess that's the first part of your question. That's sort of what heart rate variability is and kind of what it means. Um, it is because it is a marker of your autonomic nervous system balance. And there's different, there's not just one variable that comes out of heart rate variability. There's, there's a, a multitude, actually about two dozen different uh, numbers that you can measure as you're, as, as you're measuring your heart rate variability that, that really are more scientific and, and more, uh, more math than anything. And so for the average person, most, most of the uh, um, apps that you have or, or techniques that you have would just give you a single number for, for your heart rate variability, which just is sort of your overall indication of heart rate variability. Um, so, so what, that's what a lot of these new technologies will do. And so that's when you start getting into things like uh, the aura ring, as you brought up. Um, uh, so I do have an aura ring. I also have um, what's called a core sense and it's a, it's just a finger clip that measures the change in pressure. Um, and uh, the, it can actually measure the um, it's not just, again, not just a normal heart rate monitor. It can, it can detect these R to R intervals and it just does that through finger pressures. You can get some where they hook onto the earlobe and, 
and you can measure it through the ear. Um, the gold standard, though, is something that measures the the, the heart directly at the chest as well. So uh, um, more, some of the more uh, sophisticated heart rate monitors, like the Polar H10, for example, is uh, um, an upgraded version of the basic Polar chest strap, if anybody's had any experience with uh, with uh, using heart rate monitors, where it will actually be able to track the, the time between RR intervals. And so you can use uh, uh, techniques like that. So whether it be the Aura Ring, which allows you to do that, um, a heart rate strap or a finger clip like I've got as well. And um, a multitude of different apps. So Aura has its own app that would that would track um, uh, track your your heart rate variability. You can there's different exercise apps that you can use to track this during exercise, or uh, biofeedback apps where you can where you can look at uh, trying to train your body to be able to match up that that big long slow deep breathing at about six breaths a minute with your change in in blood pressure, and that that maximizes your your heart rate variability. So lots of different ways to use it. And I use it in a ton of different ways. Cause uh, like I, I mentioned earlier, I'm a bit of a data nerd and, and I'm a tech geek. And so I really like playing around with a lot of this stuff. And so, so my aura ring, I'll get to in a sec. Cause I know that's, that's the one that you're most interested in. Um, that one, that one is more for, for sleep and recovery. And so I'll talk about that in a sec. The other ones I use primarily for my biofeedback and tracking sort of what's happening with my activity. So my, I wear the heart rate monitor when I exercise and that can give me an idea of what's going on during exercise. Um, I use my finger clip for biofeedback. And so that's where I'm, I'm using, uh, uh, it's called elite HRV is the app and it, um, it, it will help me uh, help me time up my breathing with my uh, blood pressure changes and maximizing the heart rate variability. Um, and all of those things are are designed really to help me with uh, with strengthening that that parasympathetic side of 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 my being and, and and of my day. What's really good about the Aura Ring is because you wear it constantly. It's fantastic for measuring sleep, and uh, the the metrics that they use with that one. It's uh they they there's there's other things other than heart rate variability there's temperature changes that they have in that it's also an accelerometer and so the combination of the heart rate changes the temperature changes and and the movement that happens during uh during your sleep it can tell you about uh, not only just your heart rate variability changes at, during sleep which indicate your overall recovery but can also tell you what quality of sleep you had as well and so that's been one of the coolest things about this. Is, is saying that, you know, if I'm feeling like, hey, I think I had a really good sleep, I open up the Aura app and measure what and look at what, what it measured over the, the my sleep cycle. And I can see, wow, yeah, no, I had a good two hours of really deep sleep. And then I had a certain number of uh, amount of time in REM sleep and a certain amount of time in le- light sleep. And it can even tell me when I was awake, you know, when I'm movement, moving that wouldn't be sort of sleep type uh, type qualities. And so it's been really cool to kind of pair up what I've been feeling with with, uh, with that, but I don't know. I always have time to kind of think about how good my sleep is. Sometimes you're just up and going. So I always open it up in the morning and have a look and it says, okay, well, what's your readiness score? And your readiness score is based on your sleep quality, as well as your heart rate variability in terms of your overall recovery. And it, it, it's really nice feedback for what could you do during the day? Should you re- are you good to go? Are you good to just do whatever you need to do? Or maybe should you back off a little bit? If you haven't recovered enough or there's there's signs that maybe your body isn't quite ready for another hard, uh, sympathetically driven day. Um, 
and there's some really cool research that looks at, at how you can monitor your, your daily training schedule. So there's some in runners. Um, runners will use this methodology to, uh, to self-auto-regulate their, their training responses. And so when they have poor recovery and poor regulation, they, they know to back off on intensity or back off on volume. Um, the same thing in strength training, the same thing in CrossFit has been put out there. So there's a, a, a few different research articles that say that it's actually, you can get better responses or you can get the similar response with less overall volume and less overall stress. So, so sort of better overall um, in terms of what you can do for your adaptations with that. So I, that's what I like the aura ring for. It does a bunch of other things too, but really that's the, that for me is the, the most important stuff is, is to really see what my recovery is each day. Well, and I love that score that it gives because I think for maybe the lay person who isn't as data driven, it's nice to just, like you said, be able to open up, get a quick, like, should I push today? Should I take it a little bit easy? Uh, and then there is that deeper data if you want to dive into it. And I think too, a good tangible way to inspire people to start educating themselves a little bit more. Like I talk about sleep all the time and I'm glad you brought that up because literally last week's episode was all about sleep. And, you know, I think you even mentioned too, just kind of our, how our world is not designed to keep us out of that fight or flight all the time. You know, we're stressed, we're in that kind of go, go, go grind all the time. And so having that score to give you the kind of permission to rest and take that time, I think can be very helpful. And speaking from personal experience, of course. So, uh, and I like that you kind of use the analogy of, of training all of this and focusing on the breathing and that mindfulness. It really is like stretching the bicep and strengthening the bicep. You know, you can train it like a muscle. So how do you define mindfulness personally? Because I feel like, as you said, oftentimes you bring up mindfulness and people hop right to yoga or they've got a certain perspective of what that means. So what's your definition of mindfulness and how do you implement that with others and how do you teach mindfulness? Great, great question. Yeah. So, so part of my journey was to be certified as a mindfulness teacher. And so, so I did take a certification from uh, um, a PhD researcher in the, in the States that, that does a lot of mindfulness work. So my, my definition is, is follows along uh, one of the more uh, traditional definitions that came from uh, John Kabat-Zinn, who was the originator of the mindfulness-based uh, uh, stress reduction course work and, and concepts. And it's, it's, um, it's really three, three key aspects that you need all three of them for it really to be, uh, um, successful. One is that you're, you're paying attention. And so this paying attention is to pay, pay attention to the present moment. Um, pay attention to the sensations that you have, to what you're doing, to um, what thoughts are coming through your head, um, all of the, the surroundings that you have around you. So, so paying attention is the first one. You're doing it on purpose. It's not just noticing just, you know, what's what happens to be there. It's, it's about like actually seeing, okay, well, what do I see around me? What do I feel around me? Um, so it's paying attention on purpose and then with non-judgment. And, and that's a really, well, all three of them are crucial, but it's, uh, it's the one that people often forget about when, when they, uh, when they think of mindfulness or they think of uh, meditation style practices, they forget about the fact that you're not actually striving to do anything. You're not judging yourself or the sensations you feel or the thoughts you have. 
one of the one of the challenges that most people think when they think meditation is they think, well, I can't meditate because I can't clear my mind of thoughts. That is completely not what meditation is supposed to be doing. It's not what you're doing. It's not what the intention is. The intention is to notice whatever you notice, including your thoughts, and then just let them go. That doesn't mean they're gone. They're going to come back again. But you just notice them and then you return to those sensations. And so what, what we do with, um, with mindfulness and one of the ways that I help individuals learn this, and I think it's really important to understand what a good anchor is. And so I, I'm a, being a breath guy and, and being trained as uh, partially, uh, um, in respiratory physiology is, is that I really, I really, have have felt a lot about my my breath in the past and so i really i really resonate with that i really resonate with uh, the sensation of breathing and so um meditation if you're using mindfulness from a formal perspective like sitting down and meditating often it's finding this trigger which for me is breathing for others it might be a sound it might be the sensation of you sitting in a chair or lying on a mat um that you then can return to as you notice all of these other things going on And so the instruction is simply just sit, feel, focus on your anchor. For me, it's focus on the breathing. And I find somewhere in my sensation of breath that I feel it the most. And it changes day to day. Usually sometimes it's in my chest. Sometimes it's in my throat. Sometimes it's at my nostrils. Some, you know, it, it, it does change day to day. And, but I'm really feeling that in and out. And I'm just focusing on what does it feel like to go in? What does it feel like to go out? And, and I'm, that's the, that's the thought process or that's the focus. Um, you're not trying to change it. You, in this case, um, even though there's a relationship with heart rate variability biofeedback which is about pacing your breathing there's it's not actually that they're not the same thing and so it's not changing your breath it's not trying to take these deep breaths but what you find is if you can just return to what your body naturally is able to do you will naturally lengthen your breath that that is a physiological effect that happens when you learn to just kind of let the sympathetic nervous system go and and learn how to activate the parasympathetic system is your body will naturally do that and so you're not trying to to lengthen your breath you're not trying to get rid of these thoughts you're not trying to reduce your anxiety or your stress levels. You're just simply trying to notice what you notice and focusing on whatever anchor you choose. And so breathe in, breathe out, feel the breaths. Notice that your mind has gone somewhere else. That's a moment of mindfulness. You then bring that back to your anchor. You go, oh, that's cool bring it back. Right. And it's important that you don't go, Oh man, I, Oh, I lost my, my focus again. Right. So important that you don't do that. Um, and again, uh, you know, I'm a very much ev- evidence-based, uh, um, uh, individual. When I look at these things, there is very good research that says that, that, that simple difference between judging what you think and, or what you're doing and not makes all the difference in terms of strengthening that parasympathetic system and actually reducing your stress responses. Because if you're striving to make change, you actually don't make that change, which is really this paradox of, of, uh, you know, really cool aspect of the way our body works is let's just learn to trust ourselves. <laughs> our bodies are, are amazing, uh, amazing uh, vessels for our, for, for us. And, and they, they know our bodies know what to do. If we just let them do it and get out of our, our own body's way, we have the ability to heal and to regulate and to do all these things that we've forgotten how to do because of our society. So we just, it's about letting us learn, relearn how to do that. 
Yeah. I say it all the time. Our bodies are smarter than we are. So just let them do a thing. And I love your approach to mindfulness. I actually am certified in mindful meditation as well. And in a very to the T way where it's all, I mean, kind of, I guess, organically would have been rooted in like Buddhist approach, but John Kabat-Zinn and all about like non-attachment, non-judgment. And yeah, I'm a big fan of the letting the clouds flow by approach when it's a distracting thought, but I think you're exactly right. People, I, and I think uh, potentially as a result of the media, we see something very specific when we picture mindfulness, which is like, you know, almost the Buddhist monk meditating and the very Zen thing. But in our day to day, that tends to not be what mindfulness is best utilized for. So you seem to take a very kind of proactive and preventative approach, both with mindfulness and mental health and, you know, with physical training and physiotherapy as well. And I would just love to know, kind of what your recommendation for people is with, with more traditional physiotherapy. Is it something that is meant to be reactive? Is there a place for a proactive physio? And also to tell us about the program and business that you've developed, Mind Body Strength, and how that ties in your theories. Because I know that you're taking, I think, kind of a hybrid approach to all of this and created this really incredible package with your theory to wellness. Yeah, thank you for that. Um, so, so, um, the first part of your question, what, uh, what was the first part? Sorry, <laughs> just, I just lost my train of thought there. Um, sorry, that's a, this is why I'm not a professional interviewer. Uh, just in, in terms of the proactive, like I, I think right. sometimes with, with health, whether mental, physical, physio, chiro, you know, whatever modality we kind of tend to take a reactive approach. And it's, I think a lot of it because of that go, 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 like I'll ride it to the wheels fall off and then I'll deal with it. But, you know, your mindfulness and using the data that you get is I think very proactive and preventative. So where does, yeah, physiotherapy, I guess, generally come into that. And, you know, for me growing up as an athlete, it's always been, I go to therapy, you know, physical therapy. Well, I go to therapy all the time, mental therapy, but, uh, you know, physical therapy, it is more of a reactive, like, Oh, something's feeling a little off or I've injured myself. So tell me about your theory in that the proactive versus reactive. We'll start there. Yeah. So, so absolutely. The, um, the, from, from a traditional biomedical model. I mean, our health system is designed around reactivity. It's not designed around um, uh, being proactive. And it, it's, it's a huge challenge in, in multiple fronts from government funding and the way that they look at uh, uh, funding research and, and cost benefits analysis is all very reactive. Um, when they, they, you know, the, the, the medical system is, is extremely reactive in terms of you think about the amount of money that goes into surgeries, for example, compared with the amount of money that you would need to to run a, a preventative program, which we know is is extremely cost uh, um, cost benefit, and you can you can get you know for a single surgery you could access you know multiple individuals you know with with a similar similar cost across many different. Uh, um, across many different individuals physiotherapy is no different and and so we we typically traditionally have focused on you see a physio when something's wrong. And again, you could argue that's the same thing with, uh, with mental therapy and, and, uh, working with your mental health. You only go when there's something wrong. And, and I do think it's a flawed model. I do think that, uh, we have the capacity as healthcare providers, um, as well as I would argue the responsibility to be looking at how can we make people more overall holistically healthy and well 
with without having to just just pick apart the the, the those times in your life when you when you really need it that's that's great that it's there because there are going to be times when you're ill there's going to be times when you get injured there's going to be times when you're sick and and those are the times you do need someone that does specializes in in, in recovery but if you take a more proactive approach where you're trying to, the way I describe it is, is about building biopsychosocial resilience. And so we think of resilience, uh, often people will think of it as, as bouncing back from a stressor or the ability to um, come back to uh, returning to sport after an injury, you know, someone that comes back faster, they're a more resilient individual. That's part of the package. That's part of the picture, but it's not the whole picture. Um, I really like to talk about capacity building. And so capacity building helps resilience because what you're doing is you're, you're trying to get people to, from a biological perspective, be stronger, be fitter, have more capacity, more overall wellness, more overall health, so that your, your baseline, where you're starting from, is at a much higher level and way away from the point of where you really need some, some aggressive help. On the physical side, it's you know, building strength so that you, you don't ever um, get to the point where you're, you're 80 or 90 and you can't get off the toilet. And then now you're dependent on someone else to to help you with that those activities and so prevention from that perspective is proactive rehab because you're you're in rather than dealing with the the individuals that only the individuals that are having the difficulty getting off the toilet you're actually preventing a big proportion of the population from ever reaching that and so I look at that from a physical perspective, but it's really important to do that from a psychological as well as a social and spiritual perspective as well, so that you build that capacity so that even when you have something that's a significant life event that brings you down or reduces your capacity a bit, you're starting at such a higher level that it's easier to bounce back. You don't ever get to the point where you're dependent on others. And so you, the, the way you do that, it's, it's, it's such a simple formula. It's, it's you know, what, what would you have needed on, on the rehab side of things or the mental health recovery side of things and and do those things ahead of time build your capacity build your ability to regulate yourself um, emotionally and physiology physiologically and and uh, autonomic nervous system wise and you know learn to do all these things that that can prevent a lot of the problems going forward now are we there yet because that's your your question is 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 physical therapy there or do we do this in small capacities we do. And I, I think the profession is evolving to the point where we're looking at not just returning people to their prior level of where they were at, that we're actually trying to start, start building more, more functional reserve and functional capacity, but it's not across, it's not even across the board. And uh, I think it's going to take a lot of change that will happen through uh, um, government programming and, and the way the, the funding is happening. Cause that's, that's the biggest challenge right now with any healthcare yeah. is that. And I do remember the second part of your question. You, you, you had asked me about what am I doing with mind, body strength and, and how does that encapsulate uh, all of this sort of thing? So um, mind, body strength is, uh, is the company that my wife and I own. And, um, and through that um, I do consulting of individuals that are healthcare providers um, as well as individuals that are the lay public in terms of doing exactly what I just mentioned. It's, it's trying to build biopsychosocial capacity. 
And so I'm not a sociologist and I don't pretend to be, nor am I a psychologist and I don't pretend to be that either. Um, but I certainly have more training on the physical and the biological side, as well as starting to move into the psychological side. And so, so I spend a lot of time looking at, um, uh, how do we train individuals to, to be able to do or teach others uh, to do themselves or to teach others how to get stronger, how to um, be more active, how to become more mobile, how to build mental toughness or mental resilience. And, and sometimes that's, it, it, we think mental toughness, we think sports, it, it's not really that it's, it's, it's about understanding yourself and really understanding how the the emotions that you have regulate with your physiological responses. And, and so it's, it's been really cool to try and really look at things from multiple perspectives. I've got my personal side that I'm doing all of this, my research, I'm doing all of this. And now the business is, is uh, really approaching this aspect as well, where we're teaching individuals like how to pay attention to themselves. And we, the, the term that I like to use is interoception. It's, it's really that ability. It's they call it the eighth sense. It's the ability to feel what you need at any given point in time, feel what's going on within your body and to be able to react to it in an appropriate way. And, and as you absolutely said, your body is way smarter than you are, but your body is way smarter than I am. I'm what I just try and do is I try and help people learn what are the ways that you can tap into that in, in an effective manner. Yeah. Teach them to listen to those signals and recognize that. Well, I love, that's a new term for me, actually, the biopsychosocial resilience, which I feel like I will forever have in my mind now because it really is all encompassing. And I think you nailed it with your, you know, the personal and the research and the academic side, you're kind of bridging the gap between maybe where the the healthcare model still is and where you would like it to be. And I think, you know, arguably where, you know, movers and shakers like you are nudging it to be and giving people somewhere to go in the meantime. And, you know, I kind of beat a dead horse when I talk about it, but it's exactly why I went into public health to try to work on that policy and the budgeting and the funding side of it, because I think there's obviously nutrition is one of my biggest passions, especially in the ketogenic side of things, but so much missed in not using it as a preventative therapeutic approach in, you know, hospitalized settings and, and everywhere. So I love that. And of course, we'll, we'll link all of your resources. And I want to say too, you do a really incredible job um, providing free resources and like endless content on your social media, which I just think is so incredible because it makes it tangible and digestible for people. And uh, I would love to know where your passion is with that kind of the content side of things. And then just as an aside too, I was just thinking a lot about mindfulness and parenting and, you know, I didn't really fall into mindfulness and this whole journey for myself until I was 27. And I constantly think about the benefit of like, had I known these skills when I was seven and could have been, you know, utilizing my breath and, you know, mindfulness in times of stress. So yeah, tell me about the social media side of things. And then just a little bit into like your personal approach to parenting. Yeah, great, great question. So on, on social media, I'm, I'm sort of a, uh, if it makes sense to me, I'll share it kind of, kind of person. And, and I, I would much rather, um, I mean, I, I like creating my own content, but at the same time, I would much rather take someone else's content and share it liberally because it's good work that they do. It's, you know, it's something that resonates with something that I'm doing. Um, and so, so you'll actually see more re, uh, reposts from, from me than 
something you, you'll see in, you know, individual content. But I, I so I, I guess in that way, I'm partly a curator um, of content. So I look for, for people that are doing good, uh, um, doing good work, putting good content out and then sharing it. It helps me build my ideas. It helps me build what I'm doing. And then when I do put my own content out, that's individual specific, then it's very focused on the things that I really want to, uh, people to know. And, and uh, you know, so I'm not, you know, I'm, I, I don't take a, a social media approach of, um, you know, of having tons of content all day. And I know that goes against the rules of, of social media marketing and influencing and all that kind of stuff. There's so many rules, right? Um, and and I, I do fully understand that, but it's just, it's, it's, it hasn't been worth my time to take that approach. So when I put something out, it's, it's usually very meaningful unless it's about my cats or about star Wars or about my kids, which, you know, they're meaningful to me, but not to anyone else. And I still do that, but the professional stuff um, that goes through social media, I do do a lot of professional stuff on social media. And it really is that it's, it's about finding what's the right message to send. And it might be my message or it might be me just, um, you know, giving a voice to someone else's message. So, so that's social media. Yeah, I mean, I think that's an amazing point, though, the the curator of it all, because when you find someone that you know, and trust and are in alignment with your theories, like, I, my mind is just spinning where I'm like, Oh, yeah, like, I agree with this, this and this. And I feel like we have very similar approaches, although in like very different ends of the spectrum in, in healthcare. Um, you know, I know that if you share something, I will know that it's got like a stamp of approval also from someone who understands data and good research, because I think that is an issue. We will, we can't even start because we'll need a whole different podcast, but about like resharing of information that's not based in any, you know, science, (laughs) a better word. So, and uh, you know, funny that you mentioned the cats and the, you know, star Wars and that side of thing. Cause in my brain, that's how I was connecting social media and your family, because I think that is an important part of it too, is, you know, you're a, you're a business, but you are your business. And even how you shared your personal journey from, you know, being an athlete into getting into physio and then naturally research, you know, I feel like all of this has ebbed and flowed very organically with your personal life and your career, you know, really being in unison. So I would love to know a little bit more about just with your kids, is this something in terms of mindfulness and then also the physical side, how do you affect your parenting with that knowledge you have? Oh my God. So, so probably for me, I, I'm, you know, I, if you were to ask me, who am I, I'm a dad first. Um, You know, so I, I, I absolutely this this is the most meaningful aspect of this stuff for me is is how it translates to my family and you and and you got it exactly right and and um, really read my mind that it isn't just about how I help my kids it's about how I am to them who who I present myself to be and um you know as 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 you know with uh with any of the challenges that you would have had uh, mental health wise I mean it's just it it's it's a different way of approaching life when you are able to regulate and when you're not and and so for me personally as a dad it's it's about understanding where my reactions are coming from and and this is where you know mindfulness has been a big part of it but i wouldn't i you know if i don't give credit to the the mental health um professionals that i've worked with i'd be doing a complete disservice to anybody that i'm mentioning this to you know the the work that i've done with counselors and therapists is is 
been it's been literally and figuratively mind blowing, um, pun in- intended in this case. And it's it, you know just to understand myself and where my reactions come from and where some of the things that maybe I would say would, were suboptimal for me as a parent. You know, times that I'd react a little bit too strongly, or I'd uh, you know I'd have a particular way of looking at things that just you know doesn't quite jive with the situation it's really understanding where those coming from where those are coming from and through the work that i've done with mental health professionals that has led me through mindfulness and the ability to stay mindful i'm i'm able to take the emotions that i'm feeling at any given because we all feel emotions mindfulness isn't about forgetting emotions it's not not being emotional we all have emotions and we all have triggers from different past experiences, whether they be overt trauma or, you know, adverse childhood experiences or, you know, just, or anywhere in between um, that we do react and, and understanding why we react and recognizing that we're reacting to a certain thing has, it's been, it's been one of the biggest um, uh, aspects for me as a, as a parent where I can then connect with them one-to-one and I know it's me and I know that I'm giving them what they need because I'm attentive to what they're, they need rather than giving them what I think that I would need in that scenario, which is what a lot of people do. And, and I'll be honest, what I probably did before I got into really um, uh, expanding my, my knowledge and my abilities here. But then the flip side of it as well is, is um, teaching them mindfulness. And I, uh, when I, when I was in the early phases of learning about mindfulness, I, I, you know, we, we sat down and we'd have, you know, mindfulness sessions and things like that. And, and as you can expect with kids that was met with lots of variety of responses, most of which being like, why the hell are we doing this? (laughs) And it's right. Like, I don't want to do this. This is like, you know, but but I would have said the same thing as a kid, and even as a young adult, I would have said the same thing. So it's it's about finding ways to to meet for me to be able to recognize again in them what they need. Often it's it's about regulating again. It's about it's about taking that dysregulation that they're feeling uh, with any different sort of uh, point in time or activity or thing that's happened to them that's diverse, and they. And, and, and they just can't come out of it. And so even just the simple act of teaching them to breathe deeply and just to take a second, just feel and focus on your breath. And it's, it's not necessarily mindfulness meditation, the formal practice, but it's teaching them how to be mindful informally day to day with your, with your activities that you would do. And, you know, your friends that called you a, a bad name or that, you know, that you didn't get what you wanted or, you know, you, your dad made you eat the broccoli at supper and you know and you didn't want to and and now you're upset and it's just you know about teaching them about how to regulate themselves and they're not going to get it because fully completely because they're they're still kids but as they grow up hopefully it, it gives them some some base for for their skill set that that as they start exploring this in and of themselves as as young adults and into their adulthood that at least they kind of have a sense that this is this is a it's okay and and it's something that we encourage. So it's, it's been massively helpful. I mean, that's such a beautiful sentiment. I feel like it's almost the, the mindfulness journey and the mental health journey and all of it. It's almost a reparenting of yourself, which inherently creates you to be a better parent. And I was just having a conversation this morning with a friend talking about general generational trauma and how it's passed down in 
parenting styles and something as, you know, seemingly simple, although it takes work and effort as mindfulness, I think can be a huge step in the right direction. So, you know, you teaching your kids those skills that then they embody inherently, you know, at, at such a young age, I feel like just the, the positive domino effect of all of that continues. And I feel very similarly about the positive role model that I'm sure you're being in terms of moving your body. You know, we're teaching kids to move and to find, like you said, joy in movement, play. Uh, I am constantly trying to just force my clients to find something that they have fun with. I'm like, play. It doesn't have to be running. It doesn't have to be lifting weights. Do a Zumba class or like whatever you're having fun doing, that's the type of movement. And I think we, well, we can learn a lot from kids as well. So thank you for sharing that. And I want to be mindful of your time. So I would love to know if you could summarize a few, like your top three kind of tips or go-to recommendations that you would give to people in terms of optimizing their mental and physical health and just wellness in general, what would those be if you had to summarize? So first and foremost, see someone who knows what they're talking about. So, so someone like yourself on the nutrition side and the, and the health side, um, you know, very, very, uh, very important. Um, if it's the physical side, see a physical therapist. If it's the mental side, see a, see a, uh, um, a counselor or a mental health professional. Um, I mean, that, that to me has been the biggest thing because we, we can do as much as we can, um, on our own and learning is very, very important, but ultimately you can't be trained to the same level as, as some of the professionals are. And that's why they're, they're there. So utilize them and, and don't be afraid to utilize them. And, um, if you're someone out there that's like, you know, I, I don't go to counseling cause I feel like I'm okay. You know what? I, I think you're going to find that if you do go, you're, you're going to have some things that you're going to be able to improve and, and you're probably not aware of them. You're probably not aware of all the things you think you're aware of. Um, and, and cause I can speak to that exactly from experience. Uh, so that would be number one. Um, number two, think of yourself as a holistic person that has multiple needs across the biopsychosocial realm. So address your, your biological needs, just get out, get moving. And as you said, move in a way that you find enjoyable in a way that you can do consistently or even with variety just as long as you're doing something um, most days of the week um, to, to try and get yourself moving and stay active. And, and the variety can be important too. So as much as we want people just moving, we, we do understand that there are further benefits associated with more specific practices, particularly like strength training is one of the missing pieces that most of us uh, um, don't have if we're, if we're not specifically focused on it. Um, And then the last piece is don't discount the, the, uh, um, you know, the, the power of your, yourself in terms of learning what your body needs. And uh, the way to do that is, is through, again, that, that biopsychosocial side of things, you know, really explore uh, what your body is capable of uh, physiologically, physically, and mentally as well. And, and uh, you know, explore mental practices like mindfulness um, as being one of the, uh, one of the most uh valid and widely researched mental training technique that we have. Um, mindfulness is definitely at the absolute top of the list. And so if you're not familiar with it, um, find somebody that knows what they're talking about and then give it a try. Yeah, perfect. Amazing advice. And finally, a few rapid fire questions to end with you. Okay. Who is your biggest role model? Oh, biggest role model is my mom. Oh. Yeah. Yeah, it's, uh, um, you know, I had a, yeah, biggest role model is my mom. Perfect. We'll just lay that. That's a good, that's, you can't go wrong with mom. What's the best advice you've ever received? 
uh, was from my mom. Um, best advice is, is, is be yourself. Now all moms say that. Um, and I feel like I have to qualify it with that, that, that then translated to like, learn to let yourself be yourself. Best book or resource you'd recommend to people. Oh, that's a tough one, man. There's some good ones. Um, if you're, if you like nerdy, geeky stuff around this stuff that we've been talking about, Altered Traits, Richard Davidson and Dan Siegel. Uh, fantastic book. Okay. That, I need to add that to my list. Personal mantra or words you live by. Nothing is so strong as gentleness. Nothing so gentle as real strength. Oh, I've never heard that. That's a great that's one. St. Francis de Salay. Um, oh. I, I have that quote uh, translated into Irish Gaelic and tattooed on my arm. Okay. okay. I love it. Beautiful. And finally, if people want to learn more about you, what you've got going on, follow up with what you're sharing, where do they find you? Find me on social media at The Strength the Jedi, and my website is mindbodystrength.ca. Awesome. And of course, we will link everything on my site. I will let you get on with your day. Thank you so much for being here. I feel like we could have talked for hours, so I'll stop myself and hopefully we'll have you back soon to talk more. This has been so much fun. Yeah, I'd be happy to. I was happy to do this and happy to come back again. That's all the time we have together this week. Thank you so much for being here with Scotty and I. Please don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss an episode every Sunday. You can find me on Instagram and Facebook as always at KY Wellness. More details about this episode and all previous episodes can be found at kywellness.ca under the podcast tab. Don't forget to move your body, nourish your body, be kind to yourself, be kind to others. See you next week and keep yourself well.